How are y'all doing? That is good to hear. We, uh, I'm excited about today. I'm excited about uh, this message. I um, want to remind you that we're going to be in uh, Romans, the book of Romans today. And so the easiest way, and I'm just kind of resetting this, the easiest way for you to follow along with any message anytime in this church is to get your phone out, to turn it on, put it on silent, of course, and then go to connectionpoint.life. If you go to connectionpoint.life, that's how you can follow up with us. That's how you can find out about Silent Auction, but you can go to Sermon and Sermon Notes, and there, that's where you can click on Sermon Notes, and you can actually find uh, all of the scriptures for today so you don't have to flip around, and you can also take notes in that and have them emailed to you. And the cool thing is, is that when they're emailed to you, they don't go to me, they don't go to anyone else. It's just your, e- you'll just get an email with all of the notes that you took. And so it's kind of a convenient way for you to remember the sermon after the sermon. So just wanted to put that plug in for you. So we're going to go ahead and get into the message today. Uh, let's start off with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for the son that we have had this week, even when it was unexpected. Lord, we thank you so much for your son who has made a life worth living. Lord, we just pray that as I say my words today, that they will become your words. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will interpret these words, will bring these words to our hearts so that we not only find meaning, but we find you. Lord, we pray for you to do great things in our lives simply because we have trusted you. We are here today so that you can change us. And one last thing, Lord, please let the stars win today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone says amen. All right. Who says? Who says women are equal to men? Who says? Who says? All races are equal. Who says? Who says? Who says all life is valuable? Who says it's not okay for me to steal from someone who's weaker than me and take it for myself? Who says? Who says that it's not okay for me to get rid of the people who are weaker than me and actually just do what I want to do. In fact, that's the law of the jungle. That's the survival of the fittest. That is the way that we're told life is all about. Who says? Indeed, the Declaration of Independence, the authors there, they thought somebody needs to say because they put forth a document that said we have human rights. There are certain things that they say are inalienable. And this is what was written in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evidence. Everybody knows them, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence states that we have human rights. We have certain truths that we all know, but the reason we know them is because they were given to us by our creator. You see, this idea of the says who has plagued philosophy. Over and over again, there have been philosophers debate whether or not something can be good or bad, right or wrong, without the existence of God. Law professor Michael J. Perry says this in his book, Toward a Theory on Human Rights. He said, there is a religious ground for the morality of human rights. In other words, there's we have God, we have this, this grounds for human rights. But he said, it is far from clear that there is a non-religious ground for human rights. It's far from clear. Um, 
Sam Harris, who is an atheist philosopher, was asked about, he wrote a book on morality apart from God, making the case that you can find morality apart from God. And when asked, how can there be an absolute morality, absolute right or wrong apart from God, his answer was very telling. His answer was, we're working on it. In other words, we don't know. We don't have it yet. Think about it this way. Imagine you've done something wrong and you go to court, you're taken to court, and in court, a lawyer begins to argue against you and begins to say, this man is guilty, he should have never done that, it was absolutely wrong, it was, it was wrong, to, it, it hurt people, he's absolutely guilty, and then your lawyer steps up and says, you know what, it wasn't that bad, it wasn't bad at all, in fact, it's okay. He's not guilty, he shouldn't do anything. And, and, and then both of them plead their case and then they rest and they decide, okay, we're gonna settle it once and for all and they look to the bench and there is no judge. And all of a sudden you realize we've been spinning our wheels with this discourse on right or wrong. Just to say clearly, either God exists or he does not. But if he does not, nothing can take his place. What's interesting about this is that no matter what you say you believe, whether you say that there is no God, I don't believe in God, or you say, I know there's a God, every one of us lives as if there is an absolute judge, jury, and executioner. Not one person in here. You may claim, and you may know people who claim that it's all relative, that what's right for me is not what's right for you, but nobody lives that way. Nobody lives that way. We all live as if there is an absolute right or wrong. There is an absolute good or evil. There is an absolute judge, jury, and executioner. As we look at the, um, Paul's letter to the Romans today, he's going to talk a lot about this, but we're not just going to stay in one chapter. I'm going to cover a few chapters, and the reason is because you can skew a lot when you just take a couple of chapters, especially out of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. But before we even get into his letter, I want to make a case that morality, in my opinion, is the closest we have to a proof that God exists. And it's because we all live that way. And no one claims, no one lives as if morality doesn't exist, except the far, far crazy people. But what's interesting is we all have a different idea of what is right and wrong. In fact, even in this room, we could not, I bet there's no two of us that would absolutely agree on what is right and what is wrong. There's absolutely none of us in here who could agree on the, the idea of how good is good enough. See, that's the interesting thing about morality is we all know there's a right and wrong. We all live as if there's a right and wrong. But we're not real clear, we're not real sure on what exactly is absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And what I want you to see today is that when the Apostle Paul, who gave his life to, to Christ, when he makes this decision of all of Jesus, his definition of morality, of righteousness before God, changes. And What's interesting is it changes in a way that you will not see in most churches. In fact, some of you have been in church your whole life and you think you know what right and wrong is. You think you know how to be righteous or good before God. And what I think you're going to find is that when you really dig into Paul's words, 
that all of us are unsure on what morality is, on what righteousness is. And, and, and a lot of us, even in the church, we live with a skewed version of what God says is righteous. This is what he says in verse 16 of the first chapter of Romans. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that is the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. By the way, he's going to say that quite a few, to the Jews and to the Greeks, and basically he's saying to the church and not the church, because at this time he's preaching to Jewish people. He says, to the Jews and to the Greek, for it is in the righteousness, in it the righteousness of God, that is the goodness, the morality of God, is revealed from faith for faith. As it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul's saying in this, this little pregnant loaded sentence, he's saying righteousness exists. Absolute good and evil exist. And that righteousness is from God, but that righteousness is not good or bad behaviors. That righteousness is from faith for faith. It is the righteous shall live by faith. This is a phrase that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. That is the good. The people that are going to stand before God and be declared righteous, be declared moral, doesn't say they're going to live a good life. They're going to do a lot of good deeds. It says they're going to live by faith. The, the prophet Habakkuk was the first to say this. In the Old Testament, this was the claim. The righteous live by faith. And the New Testament picks it up and, and over and over again. You'll, you'll see it. You see it here in Romans. You see it in Galatians. You see it in Hebrews. You see different authors pointing out the fact that if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to say, I believe what Jesus says, you have to understand that Christianity, that following Jesus is not based on good behavior. That morality to a Christ follower is not simply on you getting better. Morality is based on faith in God. That's the case Paul is about to make. Not just becoming better people. And, and, and you need to understand this as a Christ follower, or even if you're not a Christ follower, you need to understand that, that Christianity is not making the claim you think it's making. If you think it's just about being a good person, then you're going to come to the conclusion that almost all of us in our minds have thought at least, I really don't need church to be a good person. In fact, some of the evidence would say, you know what, maybe church doesn't make good people because I've been to church. If you think that following Christ is about being a good person, then you're going to live your life thinking, I don't know if I need to go to church today. It's not that big a deal. I don't know if I need Jesus today. I, I could be good without Jesus. In fact, we look at other religions. We look even, all of us would say, I know people that, that are good people that don't go to church, that don't believe Jesus is God. I know these people and they're good people. And that's what makes Christianity unique. The message is different. This is the only faith. This is following Jesus is the only faith that says, hey, by the way, we're the worst of people. Understand that's the claim Christianity is making. Christianity is making the claim, we are not good people. You can look at other religions and you can say, man, those people seem to have their behavior a little bit better than us. And this makes some of us uncomfortable because our whole life we've gone to church and we've, we've put on our airs, we've, we've come to church and we pretended to be the good people. And we miss, we skew 
what God says. There is an absolute morality. There's an absolute right and wrong. But the problem is, it has nothing to do with your behavior. So what I would let you see is Paul's about to lay his case. And he's going to make the case that before you become a good person, you need to become a faithful person. Specifically, you need to understand the, the divine clues, the, the existence of God is going to matter. He says this, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by whom their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived and since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's what he's saying right here. He's saying God has revealed himself with clues. And we all have seen these clues and these clues matter. I was listening to a podcast and it was two atheists. Uh, they don't believe in God, but they asked the question to one another, if we die and get to heaven and realize that Jesus Christ really is the son of God, that he really is king of kings, what are we going to say? And the first guy said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to say, whoops, sorry, I missed that one totally. Can I have a do-over? I totally screwed that up. And the other one said, that's ridiculous. If I get before Jesus and realize that he is God, I'm going to look at him and I'm going to say, you really didn't give me a lot to go on, did you? You gave me a 2,000-year-old book and a bunch of followers who didn't really follow anything. Paul's making the case that none of us are going to have an excuse, that none of us can really look at God and say, you gave us nothing. In fact, he gives two categories, and that's kind of what this series has been based on. He says, first of all, he's given us the eternal power We've talked about this, that you can look at creation and you can be drawn to a creator. You can look at the philosophy has told us about the unmoved mover, the consistency in nature. Biologist Francis Collin, I said this last week, he was drawn to God. He gave his life to God because he saw math work all over the universe. It was consistent. No matter where you are, math works. And he said, there's just no way that happens by accident. The consistency showed the eternal power of a creator. We talked about the fine-tuning of the universe, that you look at our, at our world and it seems to be built for life. And you see so many examples of this. I remember sitting in, in, in class as a, as a kid thinking it's so crazy that plants give off oxygen and they take in CO2, and then we take in, or take in oxygen and give off CO2. It's so crazy. There's this cycle. It's, not, it's as if God didn't just want life to start. It's, this world is designed for it to, to be sustained. It's amazing. Paul's saying you can see the, the eternal power and the consistency and in the fine-tuning, even the Big Bang, the, the first cause, we can see. We can see the eternal power. Of God, But he also says, you can see the divine nature. And you don't need the Bible for it, he's saying. He's saying, like we made the case last, last week, you can look at a life where everyone loves. 
And we may be able to explain it in some sense as chemical reactions, but ultimately there's more than that. None of us lives as if love is just a chemical reaction. None of us lives as if small things bumping in little particles, that's all we are. None of us live that way. We live as if beauty really exists. It's not just showing us where our next meal is. We, we, we live as if we have a life purpose and then we don't get to create it. We have to discover it. Paul says you can look at just the fact that every one of us is unique and has personalities, even our thumbprints. Why are we so unique? And he would say it doesn't just show that God exists. It shows a divine nature. It's what Paul is saying. He says the divine nature. God is love. That's why love exists. God is personal. That's why he gave us personalities, but it was also so we could know him. You can see this just by what we look around and see. Beauty exists because God has gifted us with it. It's not just an evolutionary trait. It might be that, but it's more than that. It also points to the divine nature of God. You have a purpose because it was given to you and you live every day as if you do. These things are divine clues, but Paul isn't just making the, the case that God exists here, you need to understand. He's making the case it matters what you think about these divine clues. It makes, uh, it makes a difference. The ultimate divine clue, in my opinion, is the fact that absolute morality exists. That there is an absolute right or wrong that is beyond you, beyond me, absolute. Everything else I would say is a clue if there's anything close to a proof that you could say there has to be, it proves it. I would say it's the existence of good and evil. And I've even heard people say, how can God exist? Because there are good things and there are, I mean, there are all these bad things happening in the world. And just the fact that you think something is bad should draw you to the fact, man, there, got, there has to be somebody deciding what's good and bad. Because we all seem to think certain things are always bad. Certain things are always good. This is what Paul is going to say, he's going to make the case that we are all susceptible to three cosmic lies when it comes to morality. There are three cosmic lies that not only point to the existence of God, that we all fall victim to. You see, if God exists, and I would say he has to exist because we all live as if there is a judge, a jury, and an executioner. And so the first cosmic lie that we all believe is that we pretend we are the judge we pretend we get to decide right and wrong. You are the judge is the cosmic lie, the first cosmic lie, the idea that you get to decide right and wrong. Here's how Paul says it. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. We took the immortal God that, that all of us have these design, divine clues and we exchanged it for either things or even for ourselves. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and their impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They made themselves the judge, they decided they get to make the, the, the call what's right and wrong. And the thing about deciding, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, the thing about deciding that you're the judge is that none of us really believe that. We hear it all the time, you know, what's right for me might not be right for you. You hear stuff like that. 
Who are you to say that, that, that that's, that's right, that it should be? Politics is all about this. But none of us lives this way. Make, make, let's make that clear. It's a lie to think I individually get to decide, and I'll, I'll prove it. There, a few years ago, there was a news story. There was a father in Pakistan. He drowned his daughter in a river because she brought shame to their family. Now, the way she had brought shame to the family is she was walking home and a gang of men came and raped her. And the father heard about this, found out, and he was drawn to shame on his family, so much so that he took his daughter immediately and he drowned her. And he thought, he even said he was doing the right thing. He was doing what was right to bring honor to his family. None of us would say, you know what, that was a few years ago. What was right to them back then, well, it's different to us right now, but it's all relative. I mean, who are we to say that that father back then couldn't, couldn't do that and be right? Who are we to say? None of us live like that. We don't say because it happened in Pakistan, it was okay, but here it would be wrong. Instead, we say, if it happened then, it was evil then, it's evil now. If it happened in Pakistan, it was wrong. If it happened in the United States, it's wrong. If it happened on Mars, it's wrong. You know, when I was making the notes for this, I was typing them up, and I typed, we exchanged the truth of God for a like. And I typed it and fixed it, and then I was like, wait a second. You see, all of us are susceptible sometimes to put ourselves as the judge to exchange the truth of God for a lie. But we also are susceptible to exchange the truth of God for a like. In other words, what society says, what everybody's going along with, that's what we should do. That's how we should decide. But again, nobody lives like that. Nobody lives as if society really gets to decide. None of us would say, you know what, back about 70 or 80 years ago, German society decided that all the Jews should be put in ovens and gassed. And that Christian children should be taken in and they should perform experiments on them. That we're not only going to take their lives, but we're going to just be excruciating torture. They were going to take gypsies and just for fun, just because they were worthless people, they were, they were going to exterminate them. And none of us would say, well, you know, it, it was okay for them because the whole society decided that's how it was. Society said it was okay at the time. None of us say, oh, well, if, if it was right to the society, if the, if the government and the society said this is the, the morals, nobody says that's okay. If it was wrong to their society then, it was, it's wrong to our society now. If it was wrong in Germany, it's wrong in the United States, it's wrong on Mars. All of us live as if morality is more than just ourselves deciding and it's more than our society deciding. Absolute good and evil exist. And we live our life with that belief, every one of us. Not one person lives their life not believing that. We all live that way, but we all exchange the truth of God for a lie or a like. And Paul's about to give us an example, an illustration, a case study. And what's fascinating about this is this case study hits us to the heart even to this day. And I want to point out this is a case study, not about an individual sin because this sin is worse. It's a case study because the symptom is the sin, but the heart is something we still struggle with. He says this. 
For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relationships with those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since God did not, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to their debased minds to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And this is how you know it's not just about this one particular sin. That's the case study. We'll get to it in just a second. But then he said, all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, that's arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Just in case the first one didn't get you, he got you somewhere along the way. Then listen to what he says. Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, there are people who are doing them and saying it's right, but there's also society saying this is okay. And Paul is, is using a, a circumstance that's happening in his, his immediate life. He lives in a Greek culture, even though the Romans are, are in charge. And what's happening is it's invading the Jewish life as well. And so we have Jewish people that for years have followed uh, the law of the Bible. And they've read the, the Bible as God's inerrant law. And they followed it. And now all of a sudden, some people are beginning to say, why are we following this ancient book? And the Greek thought of which homosexuality is not a sin, it's not looked down upon, there's nothing wrong about it, but it's in direct conflict of what the Jewish scriptures, of what the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Christian Bible says, it's in direct conflict. And Paul's making the case, this is an example of people letting themselves or society decide what is right and wrong. And he says, understand, there are consequences for this. There are consequences. We don't get to decide. Because that's what all of our culture, even in this day, is saying. In fact, the, the lie we need to, or, or, or the truth we need to understand as a church is, this is this thought that we need to get with the times. That we need to update our morality to be more like society. Is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Or like. And it is unpopular. By definition, it will be unpopular because we are specifically saying we're not letting society decide. We're not even going to let ourselves decide, even though every single one of us is tempted to do this in some way or another. And by the way, it's not just about homosexuality, although that is clearly stated here. It also says pride or haughtiness. Says murder. You know, Jesus uh, said, Hey, you guys think you don't murder, but anytime you call someone a fool, you realize that's the same sin in your heart. You're murdering the character of that person. Jesus elevated murder. All of us here have this tendency to say, I'll decide what's right, I'll decide what's wrong. That's the first lie, is we put ourselves as the judge. The second lie we think about morality is that we put ourselves as the jury. We pretend that we are the jury, that you are the jury. That is, we pretend, we decide who is right or wrong. We, we, we pretend as if it's our job 
to decide who is guilty. And what I love about this is because almost every Christian I know reads Romans 1 and loves Romans 1 because it proves that, hey, look at all those sinners out there. And that's the way a lot of people read it. I don't think that's how Paul's writing this. I think he's pleading this of don't exchange the truth for a lie. And he says, some of us are putting ourselves in, in the place of the, the judge saying we decide what's right and wrong. And that happens a lot of times outside the church. But Paul says, but listen, you can't inside the church decide that you're going to be the jury. You're going to decide who is innocent. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. And understand, he's talking to the church. He's writing this letter to Christ followers. He says, you have no excuse, O man, and every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, that is, in putting yourself as the jury, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you yourself do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Some of us in our hearts were saying, hey, I'm glad he's talking about homosexuality. I'm glad he's pointing out their sin. And Paul's saying, you realize when you put yourself as the jury and you decide, hey, they're all innocent, you're saying, oh, I'm, 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 they're all guilty. I'm, I'm innocent. And you're doing the exact same thing. You're exchanging the truth of God for a lie because you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're saying, I can decide this. And inside the church, we're guilty of this all the time. You know what? Uh, those people over there are sinners. They are evil. But, I mean, I've got Jesus. Jesus has forgiven me. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. We, that's the way we live our life is if we can just point the finger here and there because, hey, we got Jesus. And Paul says, listen, you think you're going to escape judgment because you've got all of these sins and you're just going to sit there pointing fingers. He says, you realize the only reason you have time to, to live this life with Jesus as your Savior is because I'm drawing you to repentance. Paul, in the first six chapters of Romans, is going to make the case for the jury of who is guilty. Here's what he says in verse 310. He says, there is no one righteous, not one. You know what he says in verse 323, which we'll get to in a little bit. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus makes this case over and over again. One of the times he says, however you judge people, that's how you're going to be judged. Understand that. That before you go to somebody and say, hey, you need to get that little sawdust out of your eye. You need to understand you have a plank in your eye and you must work on that first. Paul says, whose job is it? Who's, whose job is it to judge those outside the church? He says, let God judge those outside the church in the church. I need to judge that. I need to get my house in order is what Paul says. We in the church need to quit pointing the fingers and saying, everybody, get your, get, get your act together. Get your behavior right. While inside the church, our behavior is just as bad. And we're saying, oh, we got Jesus. We don't have to change. We don't have to, 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 to do those things. We don't, because we got Jesus. Paul's saying that is an error. You're putting yourself when you start saying that other people are, are guilty and you're innocent. And so our, our tendency, when we, this is what it looks like when we put ourselves as a jury. We, we say, you know what? You need to get your life together. You need to fix your addiction. Meanwhile, 
We've got our addictions, right? To biscuits, to pride, to a lot of things. We'll step right over somebody who's hurting and needs stuff. We'll step right over them. We'll take all these blessings from God and we'll say, oh, these are mine. These, I deserve these. And we will ignore the hurting people. Of which, by the way, God said, Jesus says, if you read Matthew 25, that's the worst, worst punishment for that than just about anything. This arrogance that we have. Because we put ourselves as the judge and the jury. What Paul is saying is, listen, anytime I look and maybe I see somebody outside the church doesn't claim to follow Christ, instead of pointing to them and saying, hey, you need to get your, your, your life together, you need to get your act together, you need to understand Christ, following Christ is not about changing behavior. It's not about saying you need to stop being an addict, you need to stop being gay, you need to stop this, because you could look right back at yourself. You need to, is our answer to sin in the church, is our answer you need to stop looking at porn and then you'll get into heaven. You need to stop uh, being arrogant. If you would just give a little bit more, then you'd get into heaven. Is that ever the right answer in church? No. <laughs> if you think so, let me answer it for you. We never would point people to be better inside the church. Because ourselves, anytime we see someone else sinning, we should be drawn to the fact that we are sinners. We are sinners, and it should lead us to repent ourselves. I need to repent myself. Anytime you see a sin, instead of pointing to the behavior, you should point to Jesus. That is what Paul is saying. Point to Jesus. Stop sinning is awful advice to stand before a righteous judge and jury. Don't be gay is an awful thing to say to someone if they want to get into heaven. Don't be arrogant is a, it's an awful way to try to get into heaven. Being good is an awful way, is what Paul is saying. Don't covet your neighbor. If you could just stop that, you'd be good with God. If you could just quit wanting the stuff that your neighbor has, his house, his car, his life, his wife, whatever it is. Just fixing yourself is a horrible way, Paul is saying, to look at morality. Cosmic lie one, we put ourselves as judge, we decide what's right and wrong. Cosmic lie two, we put ourselves as the jury. We decide who is right and wrong. The third one is uh, pretending that we are the executioner. We pretend that we get to decide what is a good penalty. Paul says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he says, if our unrighteousness serves to show, that the, show the righteousness of God, in other words, if, if we understand we're sinners, and that means that the, the judge is, is good, he's perfect, he's outside, he's able to say it, then what shall we say? That it's unrighteous for God to inflict wrath on us? And I'm speaking in a human way. By no means, for how could God judge the world? You see, all of us had to have this thought, whether you're a Christian or not. All of us have said, man, hell seems pretty severe. Have y'all ever had that thought? Hell seems pretty severe. And when we say that, we're talking about for us, right? Seems pretty severe for me because I haven't done all the stuff that some of you people have done. It might be okay for some, of, some people. But for me, that's not the right punishment. And Paul's saying, you don't understand not only is God the judge who decides right and wrong, he gets to decide. Not only is he the jury, he's going to decide who is right. And by the way, he said, we're all wrong. We're all unrighteous in front of God. He says he's going to decide the penalty and he decided the penalty. In chapter 6, verse 23 is one of the, the instances. He says, the wages of sin is death. 
He says, you're all sinners and you all deserve to die. God gave you life. You rebelled against the life giver. He deserves to take your life. But here's the interesting thing. The whole point of him writing this letter is to keep you away from the judge. It's not that you will be good when you go before the judge. It's because Paul is going to make the case, hey, never go before a judge. How many of you live your life saying, I probably should try to stay out of the courtroom as much as possible unless, you know, maybe it's a good thing. Not a lot of you, so hopefully, hopefully all of us. I don't want to go before the judge. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 24. He says, don't go to the judge or jury or executioner. He says, for by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you're going to try to live the perfect life and say, hey, God, I did everything right. Not only is it going to be hard, he says, no one's going to do it. And no one is going to be right in front of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested that has been made clear apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. And he goes back, there is no distinction, remember, in Jew or Gentile. In other words, in those inside and outside the church, we're in the same boat. To those who are, are struggling with some sin that we think is abhorrent, we're in the same boat. We have two choices. We can go before the judge and be guilty. Or we can go this other way. Through faith in Christ Jesus, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying. I'll give you an example. My, my family, this happens, I've got four kids, so this happens quite a bit where I'll be in one room and I'll just hear glass break or something shatter. And every parent knows this This especially if you've got multiple kids. With one, it's pretty easy, okay? But when you get multiple kids, all of a sudden you bring all your kids together and you have to take care of business. You have to make sure. And there are, are two ways this goes. You're either gonna come in as the judge, the jury, and the executioner, which is how it goes most of the time. My kids will come and say, oh, it wasn't me. And they'll point the finger and they're all pointing at somebody else, right? It wasn't me, it was somebody put it next to the edge and then I was pushed from behind and every excuse in the book about why they're not guilty. Meanwhile, everyone knows good and well they're guilty. And when, when they, the more they plead, the more they try to tell me that they didn't do whatever it is, the more I'm like, listen, you're gonna make up for this, you're gonna pay for it, you're gonna get grounded, you're gonna get punished because you're fighting so hard to tell me you didn't do something we all know you did. If you want me to be the judge, jury, and executioner, well, then you're going to get probably a severe punishment. But there's another way sometimes that they come. Sometimes before you even get to them, they'll come, and this might be rare, but they'll come to you and they'll say, Dad, I screwed up. Dad, I didn't see it. It was an accident. I, I, I'm, I'm dumb. I, it was my fault. And I'm so sorry. I'll try to make up for it. I'll try to do what I can. And I know, by the way, my five-year-old's never going to work off anything she breaks, at least no, no time soon. I know. And so I don't look at her and I say, well, I'm the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Let me, let me make sure that you get your punishment. Instead, I receive my child as a father. When Jesus prayed, he prayed, Abba, which in Aramaic was daddy. He prayed to God, daddy. And he said, there's two ways, is what Paul's saying. You can approach your judge or you can approach your father. 
And they're entirely different ways. One is with the law and you'll never be good. But following Jesus isn't about being good. There is another way. You can come in and simply say, I am wretched. I am a sinner. I am not good. I am not righteous. I don't deserve anything you've given me. But I'm your child. And I believe that you love me. I believe. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, and I'll close with this. This is the whole point of what he's saying. He's making us see if we want to be good people, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to hate trying to do it. You're going to think, you're never going to do it. But he says in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 8, he says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And that is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, made righteous before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes this whole letter not trying to tell you that you got to get your act together, you got to stop sinning. Instead, he says, listen, when it comes to your life, understand you're going to face God one way or the other. You can face him as a judge or you can face him as a child of God, as your father. And if you face him as a father, you'll understand that he paid the penalty for all of the things you broke. And when you live your life, you'll hopefully look moral because the same reason that last night when I asked my kids to go to bed and they actually went to bed, it's just because they loved me. They didn't have to. They could have rebelled, but they, they, they just love me because I'm their father. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good person, but I'm saying you shouldn't do that if you think that's the way you're going to be good before God. Morality shows us that God exists, but it also is misunderstood. Morality is not being a good person. Morality is having faith in your father. Let's pray. Lord, I, I plead with everyone in here that right now in this moment, there are some of us in here who feel unworthy. We've lived our life thinking we're not good enough. We may have acted as if we're the best person. We may have come to church for years thinking at least I'm better than them. Maybe that's enough. But in our hearts, we wonder, have I been good enough? Lord, your answer is clear. There is no one who is good enough. But our path has never been by being good enough. Our path has always been in trusting in our Father. Lord, right now, every single person in here who's tempted to walk out of here without calling on the name of their father, I pray that you will convict us in a powerful way. I pray that you'll open our eyes to what the church truly is. It's a family of, of strugglers who aren't judging one another and aren't looking to, to say we're better than everyone else. Instead, we should be saying we're the worst of the lot and we need Jesus. And by the way, if you are struggling, you need Jesus too. Come and join us. 
Lord, I pray that this week we will not go out and try to fix people, but we'll point them to the only person who can not only fix us, but you can forgive us. Lord, I pray that we walk out of here knowing you have forgiven us. You have paid every cent that we owe with our life because you sent your son to this earth to die on a cross and you proved it when he rose again. Lord, let us look to the cross. Let us look to your righteousness, not ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.